Section 9 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C.K. Scott Moncrief. Section 9. But on this memorable afternoon, when the curé had come as well, and by his interminable visit had drained my aunt's strength, Françoise followed Eulalie from the room, saying, Madame Octave, I will leave you to rest. You look utterly tired out. And my aunt answered her not a word, breathing a sigh so faint that it seemed it must prove her last, and lying there with closed eyes, as though already dead. But hardly had Françoise arrived downstairs, when four peals of a bell, pulled with the utmost violence, reverberated through the house, and my aunt, sitting erect upon her bed, called out, "'Has you, Lily, gone yet? Would you believe it? I forgot to ask her whether Madame Goupil arrived in church before the elevation. Run after her, quick!' But Françoise returned alone, having failed to overtake you, Lily. "'It is most provoking!' said my aunt, shaking her head, the one important thing that I had to ask her. In this way, life went by for my aunt Leonie, always the same, in the gentle uniformity of what she called, with a pretense of deprecation, but with a deep tenderness, her little jog-trot. Respected by all and sundry, not merely in her own house, where every one of us, having learned the futility of recommending any healthier mode of life, had become gradually resigned to its observance. But in the village as well, where, three streets away, a tradesman who had to hammer nails into a packing-case would send first to Françoise to make sure that my aunt was not resting. Her little jog-trot was, none the less, brutally disturbed on one occasion in this same year like a fruit hidden among its leaves, which has grown and ripened unobserved by man, until it falls of its own accord, there came upon us one night the kitchen-maid's confinement. Her pains were unbearable, and, as there was no midwife in Combray, Françoise had to set off before dawn to fetch one from Thibesy. My aunt was unable to rest, owing to the cries of the girl, and as Françoise though the distance was nothing, was very late in returning, her services were greatly missed. And so, in the course of the morning, my mother said to me, Run upstairs and see if your aunt wants anything. I went into the first of her two rooms, and through the open door of the other saw my aunt lying on her side, asleep. I could hear her breathing in what was almost distinguishable as a snore. I was just going to slip away, when something, probably the sound of my entry, interrupted her sleep, and made it change speed, as they say of motor-cars nowadays, for the music of her snore broke off for a second, and began again on a lower note. Then she awoke, and half turned her face, which I could see for the first time. A kind of horror was imprinted on it. Plainly, she had just escaped from some terrifying dream. She could not see me from where she was lying, and I stood there not knowing whether I ought to go forward or to retire, 
but all at once she seemed to return to a sense of reality, and to grasp the falsehood of the visions that had terrified her. A smile of joy, a pious act of thanksgiving to God, who is pleased to grant that life shall be less cruel than our dreams, feebly illumined her face, and, with the habit she had formed of speaking to herself, half aloud, when she thought herself alone, she murmured, The Lord be praised, we have nothing to disturb us here but the kitchen-maid's baby, and I've been dreaming that my poor Octave had come back to life, and was trying to make me take a walk every day. She stretched out a hand towards her rosary, which was lying on the small table, but sleep was once again getting the mastery, and did not leave her the strength to reach it. She fell asleep, calm and contented, and I crept out of the room on tiptoe, without either her or anyone's else ever knowing, from that day to this, what I had seen and heard. When I say that, apart from such rare happenings as this confinement, my aunt's little jog-trot never underwent any variation, I do not include those variations which, repeated at regular intervals, and in identical form, did no more, really, than print a sort of uniform pattern upon the greater uniformity of her life. So, for instance, every Saturday, as Françoise had to go in the afternoon to market at roussainville le pin the whole household would have to have luncheon an hour earlier. And my aunt had so thoroughly acquired the habit of this weekly exception to her general habits, that she clung to it as much as to the rest. She was so well routine to it, as Françoise would say, that if, on a Saturday, she had had to wait for her luncheon until the regular hour, it would have upset her as much as if she had had, on an ordinary day, to put her luncheon forward to its Saturday time. Incidentally, this acceleration of luncheon gave Saturday, for all of us, an individual character, kindly and rather attractive. At the moment when, ordinarily, there was still an hour to be lived through before mealtime sounded, we would all know that in a few seconds we should see the endives make their precocious appearance, followed by the special favour of an omelette, an unmerited steak. The return of this asymmetrical Saturday was one of those petty occurrences, intramural, localised, almost civic, which, in uneventful lives and stable orders of society, create a kind of national unity, and become the favourite theme for conversation, for pleasantries, for anecdotes which can be embroidered as the narrator pleases. It would have provided a nucleus, ready-made, for a legendary cycle, if any of us had had the epic mind. At daybreak, before we were dressed, without rhyme or reason, save for the pleasure of proving the strength of our solidarity, we would call to one another good-humouredly, cordially, patriotically, hurry up! There's no time to be lost. Don't forget, it's Saturday. While my aunt, gossiping with Françoise, and reflecting that the day would be even longer than usual, would say, You might cook them a nice bit of veal, seeing that it's Saturday. If, at half-past ten, someone absent-mindedly pulled out a watch and said, I say, an hour and a half still before luncheon, everyone else would be in ecstasies over being able to retort at once, Why, what are you thinking about? Have you forgotten that it's Saturday? 
and a quarter of an hour later we would still be laughing and reminding ourselves to go up and tell Aunt Lernie about this absurd mistake to amuse her. The very face of the sky appeared to undergo a change. After luncheon, the sun, conscious that it was Saturday, would blaze an hour longer in the zenith, and when someone, thinking that we were late in starting for our walk, said, What? Only two o'clock? feeling the heavy throb go by him of the twin strokes from the steeple of Saint-Hilaire, which as a rule passed no one at that hour upon the highways, deserted for the midday meal, or for the nap which follows it, or on the banks of the bright and ever-flowing stream, which even the angler had abandoned, and so slipped unaccompanied into the vacant sky, where only a few loitering clouds remained to greet them. The whole family would respond in chorus, why, you're forgetting, we had luncheon an hour earlier. You know very well, it's Saturday. The surprise of a barbarian, for so we termed everyone who was not acquainted with Saturday's special customs, who had called at eleven o'clock to speak to my father, and had found us at table, was an event which used to cause Francoise as much merriment as, perhaps, anything that had ever happened in her life and if she found it amusing that the nonplussed visitor should not have known, beforehand, that we had our luncheon an hour earlier on Saturdays, it was still more irresistibly funny that my father himself, fully as she sympathised from the bottom of her heart, with the rigid chauvinism which prompted him, should never have dreamed that the barbarian could fail to be aware of so simple a matter and so had replied, with no further enlightenment of the other's surprise at seeing us already in the dining-room, You see, it's Saturday. On reaching this point in the story, Françoise would pause to wipe the tears of merriment from her eyes, and then, to add to her own enjoyment, would prolong the dialogue, inventing a further reply for the visitor to whom the word Saturday had conveyed nothing and so far from our objecting to these interpolations we would feel that the story was not yet long enough and would rally her with oh but surely he said something else as well there was more than that the first time you told it my great-aunt herself would lay aside her work and raise her head and look on at us over her glasses the day had yet another characteristic feature namely that during may we used to go out on saturday evenings after dinner to the month of mary devotions as we were liable there to meet monsieur vinteuil who held very strict views on the deplorable untidiness of young people which seems to be encouraged in these days my mother would first see that there was nothing out of order in my appearance and then we would set out for the church it was on these month of mary services that i can remember having first fallen in love with hawthorn blossom. The hawthorn was not merely in the church, for there, holy ground as it was, we had all of us a right of entry, but, arranged upon the altar itself, inseparable from the mysteries in whose celebration it was playing a part, it thrust in among the tapers and the sacred vessels its rows of branches, tied to one another horizontally in a stiff, festal scheme of decoration and they were made more lovely still by the scalloped outline of the dark leaves, over which were scattered in profusion, as over a bridal train, little clusters of buds of a dazzling whiteness. 
though I dared not look at them save through my fingers, I could feel that the formal scheme was composed of living things, and that it was nature herself who, by trimming the shape of the foliage, and by adding the crowning ornament of those snowy buds, had made the decorations worthy of what was at once a public rejoicing and a solemn mystery. Higher up on the altar, a flower had opened here and there with a careless grace, holding so unconcernedly, like a final, almost vaporous bedizening, its bunch of stamens, slender as gossamer, which clouded the flower itself in a white mist, that in following these with my eyes, in trying to imitate, somewhere inside myself, the action of their blossoming, I imagined it as a swift and thoughtless movement of the head, with an enticing glance from her contracted pupils, by a young girl in white, careless and alive. Monsieur Vinteuil had come in with his daughter, and had sat down beside us. He belonged to a good family, and had once been music-master to my grandmother's sisters, so that when, after losing his wife and inheriting some property, he had retired to the neighbourhood of Combray, we used often to invite him to our house. But with his intense prudishness, he had given up coming, so as not to be obliged to meet Swann, who had made what he called a most unsuitable marriage, as seems to be the fashion in these days. My mother, on hearing that he composed, told him by way of a compliment that, when she came to see him, he must play her something of his own. Monsieur Vinteuil would have liked nothing better, but he carried politeness and consideration for others to so fine a point, always putting himself in their place, that he was afraid of boring them, or of appearing egotistical, if he carried out, or even allowed them to suspect what were his own desires. On the day when my parents had gone to pay him a visit, I had accompanied them, but they had allowed me to remain outside, and as Monsieur Vinteuil's house, Montjuvin, stood on a site actually hollowed out from a steep hill covered with shrubs, among which I took cover, I had found myself on a level with his drawing-room, upstairs, and only a few feet away from its window. When a servant came in to tell him that my parents had arrived, I had seen Monsieur Vinteuil run to the piano, and lay out a sheet of music so as to catch the eye. But as soon as they entered the room, he had snatched it away, and hidden it in a corner. He was afraid, no doubt, of letting them suppose that he was glad to see them only because it gave him a chance of playing them some of his compositions. And every time that my mother, in the course of her visit, had returned to the subject of his playing, he had hurriedly protested, "'I cannot think who put that on the piano.' It is not the proper place for it at all, and had turned the conversation aside to other topics, simply because those were of less interest to himself. His one and only passion was for his daughter, and she, with her somewhat boyish appearance, looked so robust that it was hard to restrain a smile when one saw the precautions her father used to take for her health with spare shawls, always in readiness to wrap round her shoulders. My grandmother had drawn our attention to the gentle, delicate, almost timid expression, which might often be caught flitting across the face, dusted all over with freckles, of this otherwise stolid child, 
when she had spoken, she would at once take her own words in the sense in which her audience must have heard them. She would be alarmed at the possibility of a misunderstanding, and one would see, in clear outline, as though in a transparency, beneath the mannish face of the good sort that she was, the finer features of a young woman in tears. When, before turning to leave the church, I made a genuflection before the altar. I felt suddenly, as I rose again, a bitter-sweet fragrance of almonds steal towards me from the hawthorn blossom, and I then noticed that on the flowers themselves were little spots of a creamier colour, in which I imagined that this fragrance must lie concealed, as the taste of an almond cake lay in the burned parts, or the sweetness of Mademoiselle Vantois' cheeks beneath their freckles. Despite the heavy, motionless silence of the hawthorns, these gusts of fragrance came to me like the murmuring of an intense vitality, with which the whole altar was quivering like a roadside hedge explored by living antennae, of which I was reminded by seeing some stamens, almost red in colour, which seemed to have kept the springtime virulence, the irritant power of stinging insects, now transmuted into flowers. Outside the church, we would stand talking for a moment with Monsieur Vinteuil, in the porch. Boys would be chevying one another in the square, and he would interfere, taking the side of the little ones, and lecturing the big. If his daughter said, in her thick, comfortable voice, how glad she had been to see us, immediately it would seem as though some elder and more sensitive sister, latent in her, had blushed at this thoughtless, schoolboyish utterance which had, perhaps, made us think that she was angling for an invitation to the house. Her father would then arrange a cloak over her shoulders. They would clamber into a little dog-cart which she herself drove, and home they would both go to Montjuvin. As for ourselves, the next day being Sunday, with no need to be up and stirring before high mass, if it was a moonlight night and warm, then, instead of taking us home at once, my father, in his thirst for personal distinction, would lead us on a long walk round by the Calvary, which my mother's utter incapacity for taking her bearings, or even for knowing which road she might be on, made her regard as a triumph of his strategic genius. Sometimes we would go as far as the viaduct, which began to stride on its long legs of stone at the railway station, and to me typified all the wretchedness of exile beyond the last outposts of civilization, because every year, as we came down from Paris, we would be warned to take special care, when we got to Cambrai, not to miss the station, to be ready before the train stopped, since it would start again in two minutes, and proceed across the viaduct, out of the lands of Christendom, of which Cambrai, to me, represented the farthest limit, we would return by the boulevard de la gare which contained the most attractive villas in the town in each of their gardens the moonlight copying the art of hubert robert had scattered its broken staircases of white marble its fountains of water and gates temptingly ajar its beams had swept away the telegraph office all that was left of it was a column half shattered but preserving the beauty of a ruin which endures for all time I would by now be dragging my weary limbs, and ready to drop with sleep, 
the balmy scent of the lime-trees, seemed a consolation which I could obtain only at the price of great suffering and exhaustion, and not worthy of the effort. From gates far apart, the watch-dogs, awakened by our steps in the silence, would set up an antiphonal barking, as I still hear them bark at times in the evenings, and it is in their custody, when the public gardens of Combray were constructed on its site, that the boulevard de la Gare must have taken refuge, for wherever I may be, as soon as they begin their alternate challenge and acceptance, I can see it again with all its lime-trees, and its pavement glistening beneath the moon. Suddenly my father would bring us to a standstill, and ask my mother, "'Where are we?' Utterly worn out by the walk, but still proud of her husband, she would lovingly confess that she had not the least idea. He would shrug his shoulders and laugh, and then, as though it had slipped, with his latch-key, from his waistcoat pocket, he would point out to us, where it stood before our eyes, the back gate of our own garden, which had come, hand in hand with the familiar corner of the Rue du Saint-Esprit, to await us, to greet us at the end of our wanderings over paths unknown. My mother would murmur admiringly, You really are wonderful! And from that instant I had not to take another step. The ground moved forward under my feet in that garden where, for so long, my actions had ceased to require any control, or even attention, from my will. Custom came to take me in her arms, carried me all the way up to my bed, and laid me down there like a little child. Although Saturday, by beginning an hour earlier, and by depriving her of the services of Francoise, passed more slowly than other days for my aunt, yet the moment it was past, and a new week begun, she would look forward with impatience to its return, as something that embodied all the novelty and distraction which her frail and disordered body was still able to endure. This was not to say, however, that she did not long, at times, for some even greater variation, that she did not pass through those abnormal hours in which one thirsts for something different from what one has, when those people who, through lack of energy or imagination, are unable to generate any motive power in themselves, cry out, as the clock strikes or the postman knocks, in their eagerness for news, even if it be bad news, for some emotion even that of grief, when the heart-strings, which prosperity has silenced, like a harp laid by, yearn to be plucked and sounded again by some hand, even a brutal hand, even if it shall break them, when the will, which has with such difficulty brought itself to subdue its impulse, to renounce its right to abandon itself to its own uncontrolled desires and consequent sufferings, would fain cast its guiding reins into the hands of circumstances, coercive and, it may be, cruel. Of course, since my aunt's strength, which was completely drained by the slightest exertion, returned but drop by drop into the pool of her repose, the reservoir was very slow in filling, and months would go by before she reached that surplus which other people use up in their daily activities but which she had no idea, and could never decide how to employ. And I have no doubt that then, just as a desire to have her potatoes served with bechamel sauce, for a change, 
would be formed, ultimately, from the pleasure she found in the daily reappearance of those mashed potatoes of which she was never tired, she would extract from the accumulation of those monotonous days, on which she so much depended, a keen expectation of some domestic cataclysm, instantaneous in its happening, but violent enough to compel her to put into effect, once for all, one of those changes which she knew would be beneficial to her health, but to which she could never make up her mind without some such stimulus. She was genuinely fond of us. She would have enjoyed the long luxury of weeping for our untimely decease, coming at a moment when she felt well and was not in a perspiration, the news that the house was being destroyed by a fire, in which all the rest of us had already perished, a fire which, in a little while, would not leave one stone standing upon another, but from which she herself would still have plenty of time to escape without undue haste, provided that she rose at once from her bed, must often have haunted her dreams, as a prospect which combined with the two minor advantages of letting her taste the full savour of her affection for us in long years of mourning, and of causing universal stupefaction in the village when she should sally forth to conduct our obsequies, crushed but courageous, moribund but erect, the paramount and priceless boon of forcing her at the right moment with no time to be lost, no room for weakening hesitations, to go off and spend the summer at her charming farm of Mirogreen, where there was a waterfall. Inasmuch as nothing of this sort had ever occurred, though indeed she must often have pondered the success of such a manoeuvre, as she lay alone absorbed in her interminable games of patience, and though it must have plunged her in despair from the first moment of its realisation, from the first of those little unforeseen facts, the first word of calamitous news, whose accents can never afterwards be expunged from the memory. Everything that bears upon it the imprint of actual physical death, so terribly different from the logical abstraction of its possibility. She would fall back from time to time to add an interest to her life, upon imagining other, minor catastrophes, which she would follow up with passion. She would beguile herself with a sudden suspicion that Francoise had been robbing her, that she had set a trap to make certain, and had caught her betrayer red-handed, and being in the habit, when she made up a game of cards by herself, of playing her own and her adversary's hands at once, she would first stammer out Francoise's awkward apologies, and then reply to them with such a fiery indignation that any of us who happened to intrude upon her at one of these moments would find her bathed in perspiration, her eyes blazing, her false hair pushed awry, and exposing the baldness of her brows. Francoise must often, from the next room, have heard these mordant sarcasms levelled at herself, the mere framing of which in words would not have relieved my aunt's feelings sufficiently had they been allowed to remain in a purely immaterial form, without the degree of substance and reality which he added to them by murmuring them half aloud. Sometimes, however, even these counterpane dramas would not satisfy my aunt. She must see her work staged. And so, on a Sunday, with all the doors mysteriously closed, she would confide in Eulalie her doubts of Francoise's integrity and her determination to be rid of her, 
and on another day she would confide in Françoise her suspicions of the disloyalty of Eulalie, to whom the front door would very soon be closed for good. A few days more, and disgusted with her latest confidant, she would again be as thick as thieves with a traitor, while, before the next performance, the two would once more have changed their parts. But the suspicions which Eulalie might occasionally breed in her were no more than a farm of straw, which must soon subside for lack of fuel, since Eulalie was not living with her in the house. It was a very different matter when the suspect was Françoise, of whose presence under the same roof as herself my aunt was perpetually conscious, while for fear of catching cold, were she to leave her bed, she would never dare go downstairs to the kitchen to see for herself whether there was, indeed, any foundation for her suspicions. And so on by degrees, until her mind had no other occupation than to attempt, at every hour of the day, to discover what was being done, what was being concealed from her by Françoise. She would detect the most furtive movement of Françoise's features, something contradictory in what she was saying, some desire which she appeared to be screening. And she would show her that she was unmasked by a single word which made Françoise turn pale, and which my aunt seemed to find a cruel satisfaction in driving deep into her unhappy servant's heart. And the very next Sunday, a disclosure by Eulalie, like one of those discoveries which suddenly open up an unsuspected field for exploration to some new science which has hitherto followed only the beaten paths, proved to my aunt that her own worst suspicions fell a long way short of the appalling truth. But Françoise ought to know that, said Eulalie, now that you have given her a carriage. Now that I have given her a carriage? gasped my aunt. Oh, but I didn't know. I only thought so. I saw her go by yesterday in her open coach, as proud as Artaban, on her way to Roussenville Market. I suppose that it must be Madame Octave who had given it to her. So on by degrees, until Françoise and my aunt, the quarry and the hunter, could never cease from trying to forestall each other's devices. My mother was afraid lest Françoise should develop a genuine hatred of my aunt, who was doing everything in her power to annoy her. However that might be, Françoise had come, more and more, to pay an infinitely scrupulous attention to my aunt's least word and gesture. When she had to ask her for anything, she would hesitate first for a long time, making up her mind how best to begin. And when she had uttered her request, she would watch my aunt covertly, trying to guess from the expression on her face what she thought of it, and how she would reply. And in this way, whereas an artist who had been reading memoirs of the seventeenth century, and wished to bring himself nearer to the great Louis, would consider that he was making progress in that direction, when he constructed a pedigree that traced his own descent from some historic family, or when he engaged in correspondence with one of the reigning sovereigns of Europe, and so would shut his eyes to the mistake he was making in seeking to establish a similarity by an exact and therefore lifeless copy of mere outward forms. A middle-aged lady in a small country town, by doing no more than yield wholehearted obedience to her own irresistible eccentricities, and to a spirit of mischief engendered by the utter idleness of her existence, 
could see, without ever having given a thought to Louis XIV, the most trivial occupations of her daily life, her morning toilet, her luncheon, her afternoon nap, assume, by virtue of their despotic singularity, something of the interest that was to be found in what Saint-Simon used to call the machinery of life at Versailles, and was able, too, to persuade herself that her silence, a shade of good humour or of arrogance on her features, would provide Françoise with matter for a mental commentary, as tense with passion and terror, as did the silence, the good humour, or the arrogance of the king when a courtier, or even his greatest nobles, had presented a petition to him at the turning of an avenue at Versailles. One Sunday, when my aunt had received simultaneous visits from the curé and from Eulalie, and had been left alone afterwards to rest, the whole family went upstairs to bid her good-night, and Mamma ventured to condole with her on the unlucky coincidence that always brought both visitors to her door at the same time. "'I hear that things went wrong again to-day, Leonie,' she said kindly. "'You have had all your friends here at once.' And my great-aunt interrupted with, "'Too many good things.' For, since her daughter's illness, she felt herself in duty bound to revive her as far as possible by always drawing her attention to the brighter side of things. But my father had begun to speak. "'I should like to take advantage,' he said, "'of the whole family's being here together, to tell you a story, so as not to have to begin all over again to each of you separately. I am afraid we are in Monsieur Le Grandin's bad books. He would hardly say how do you do to me this morning.' I did not wait to hear the end of my father's story, for I had been with him myself after Mass when we had passed Monsieur Le Grandin. Instead, I went downstairs to the kitchen to ask for the bill of fare for our dinner, which was of fresh interest to me daily, like the news in a paper, and excited me as might the programme of a coming festivity. As Monsieur Le Grandin had passed close by us on our way from church, walking by the side of a lady, the owner of a country house in the neighbourhood, whom we knew only by sight. My father had saluted him in a manner at once friendly and reserved, without stopping in his walk. Monsieur Le Grandin had barely acknowledged the courtesy, and then with an air of surprise, as though he had not recognised us, and with that distant look characteristic of people who do not wish to be agreeable, and who from the suddenly receding depths of their eyes seem to have caught sight of you at the far end of an interminably straight road, and at so great a distance, that they content themselves with directing towards you an almost imperceptible movement of the head, in proportion to your doll-like dimensions. Now the lady who was walking with Le Grandin was a model of virtue, known and highly respected. There could be no question of his being out for amorous adventure, and annoyed at being detected, and my father asked himself how he could possibly have displeased our friend. I should be all the more sorry to feel that he was angry with us, he said, because among all those people in their Sunday clothes there is something about him, with his little cutaway coat and his soft neckties, so little dressed up, so genuinely simple, an air of innocence almost, which is really attractive. But the vote of the family council was unanimous, that my father had imagined the whole thing, or that Le Grandin, at the moment in question, had been preoccupied in thinking about something else, 
Anyhow, my father's fears were dissipated no later than the following evening. As we returned from a long walk, we saw, near the Pont Vieux, Le Grandin himself, who on account of the holidays was spending a few days more in Combray. He came up to us with outstretched hand. "'Do you know, Master Book-lover,' he asked me, "'this line of Paul Desjardins? "'Now are the woods all black, but still the sky is blue.' Is not that a fine rendering of a moment like this? Perhaps you have never read Paul Desjardins. Read him, my boy, read him. In these days he is converted, they tell me, into a preaching friar, but he used to have the most charming water-colour touch. Now are the woods all black, but still the sky is blue. May you always see a blue sky overhead, my young friend. And then, even when the time comes, which is coming now for me, when the woods are all black, when night is fast falling, you will be able to console yourself, as I am doing, by looking up to the sky. He took a cigarette from his pocket, and stood for a long time, his eyes fixed on the horizon. Goodbye, friends, he suddenly exclaimed, and left us. At the hour when I usually went downstairs to find out what there was for dinner, its preparation would already have begun, and Françoise, a colonel with all the forces of nature for her subalterns, as in the fairy tales where giants hard themselves out as scullions, would be stirring the coals, putting the potatoes to steam, and, at the right moment, finishing over the fire those culinary masterpieces which had been first got ready in some of the great array of vessels, triumphs of the potter's craft, which ranged from tubs and boilers and cauldrons and fish-kettles, down to jars for game, moulds for pastry, and tiny pannikins for cream, and included an entire collection of pots and pans of every shape and size. I would stop by the table, where the kitchen-maid had shelved them, to inspect the platoons of peas, drawn up in ranks and numbered, like little green marbles, ready for a game. But what fascinated me would be the asparagus, tinged with ultramarine and rosy pink which ran from their heads, finely stippled in mauve and azure, through a series of imperceptible changes to their white feet, still stained a little by the soil of their garden bed. A rainbow loveliness that was not of this world. I felt that these celestial hues indicated the presence of exquisite creatures who had been pleased to assume vegetable form, who, through the disguise which covered their firm and edible flesh, allowed me to discern in this radiance of earliest dawn these hinted rainbows, these blue evening shades, that precious quality which I should recognise again when all night long after a dinner at which I had partaken of them. They played, lyrical and coarse in their jesting, as the fairies in Shakespeare's dream, at transforming my humble chamber into a bower of aromatic perfume. Poor Giotto's charity, as one had named her, charged by Françoise with the task of preparing them for the table, would have them lying beside her in a basket, sitting with a mournful air, as though all the sorrows of the world were heaped upon her, and the light crowns of azure, which capped the asparagus shoots above their pink jackets, would be finely and separately outlined, star by star, as in Giotto's fresco are the flowers banded about the brows, or patterning the basket of his virtue at Padua. 
and meanwhile Françoise would be turning on the spit one of those chickens, such as she alone knew how to roast, chickens which had wafted far abroad from Combray the sweet savour of her merits, and which, while she was serving them to us at table, would make the quality of kindness predominate for the moment in my private conception of her character. The aroma of that cooked flesh, which she knew how to make so unctuous and so tender, seeming to me no more than the proper perfume of one of her many virtues. But the day on which, while my father took counsel with his family upon our strange meeting with Le Grandin, I went down to the kitchen, was one of those days when Giotto's charity, still very weak and ill after her recent confinement, had been unable to rise from her bed. Françoise, being without assistance, had fallen into arrears, when I went in, I saw her in the back kitchen, which opened on to the courtyard, in process of killing a chicken, by its desperate and quite natural resistance, which Françoise, beside herself with rage as she attempted to slit its throat beneath the air, accompanied with shrill cries of, Filthy creature! Filthy creature! It made the saintly kindness and unction of our servant rather less prominent than it would do, next day at dinner, when it made its appearance in a skin gold embroidered like a chasuble, and its precious juice was poured out drop by drop as from a pix. When it was dead, Françoise mopped up its streaming blood, in which, however, she did not let her rancour drown, for she gave vent to another burst of rage, and gazing down at the carcass of her enemy, uttered a final, Filthy creature! End of section 9